This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Diversity at Facebook is a big issue. I asked product designer Kian Lavi how having a diverse workforce affects what Facebook creates. When you have a diverse group of people, you have a diverse, diverse set of ideas. Um, when you have a diverse set of ideas, you can often converge on the best ones and start to filter out things that don't make sense. I think having a diverse group of people is important because we all have our own biases and we all, all share our, our own assumptions. And when you have people to challenge those assumptions, you can make better things. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I just want to let you all know once again, we are now part of the new media network at Glitch. So starting in 2019, which is basically after this episode, new episodes will only be published there. So make sure that you check out revisionpath.com for the full announcement. There'll also be a banner that will let you know where the new episodes are. If you're already subscribed to us on Apple Podcasts or any other podcatcher, you're fine. <laughs> you'll, you'll get all the episodes, no problem, but just wanted to let you all know about that. So uh, now let's talk about our sponsors, Google Design and MailChimp. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's leading marketing platform for small businesses. Now, MailChimp may have started out doing just email because it's, it's in their name, it's MailChimp, but now you can use it for so many more things. You can use it for Facebook ads, you can use it for Instagram ads, you can use it for a lot of powerful automations. There's, there's a bunch of stuff you can do now with MailChimp. It's really transformed over the years. You can think of it more like a marketing powerhouse for your business. Sign up for a free account today and give it a try. MailChimp, send better email. Now for this week's interview. It's our 275th episode. It's also our last episode of 2018. And our guest is artist and technologist Omayeli Aranyeka. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, I'm Yeli. I'm an artist and technologist. I currently live in San Francisco and I work there as a software engineer at LinkedIn. On the side, I tend to make a lot of creative projects. Um, I make Twitter bots, um, kind of sat satirical websites and stuff like that. How long have you been at LinkedIn now? About a year. Okay. I think. I don't remember. We've had a few people on the show that have been, or I think they're still at LinkedIn. Harrison Wheeler is one of them. Renee Reed is another one. I don't know. Oh, yeah. I met Renee. I don't believe I've met Harrison. Okay, yeah. They're both super cool people. I'm glad you had a chance to, to meet Renee. If you, if you see her, tell her I said what's up. Okay. I will. <laughs> what's a typical day like for you at LinkedIn? So the team I'm on is called the Design Systems Team. So we make all the components that make up different parts of the site or of the app. 
So if you see like a carousel somewhere on the site, we probably made that. So our job is to maintain consistency across different platforms. So instead of like five different people making a carousel for each of their websites, we make one carousel and then developers can adapt that to whatever they want. So I usually get in around eight. I have a two hour commute. I live in San Francisco and I work in Sunnyvale. So I get to work around eight. And then I usually spend like maybe the next 30 minutes just like answering emails. We post our stand up in the Slack group. So I just say what I'm going to work on for the day. Usually it's making a new component or answering people's questions about how to use a particular component. So basically, my job is maintaining documentation so people know how to use the components that we make making components or kind of just like trying to figure out what else we could make that could help make our jobs easier. So I spend my day just doing that and then communicating with other developers on Slack. And then I go home, I get on the bus around four and then I get home around six and that's it. Well, so it's a two hour commute each way. Yeah. Woo. Wow. Yeah. So four hours every day. That is why, I mean, I, I back, this is back when I was in college. I, uh, I interned at Moffett Field, which is not too far from Mountain View. And I remember like getting on the light rail to get to Caltrain and taking that up to San Francisco. Like we would do this on the weekends just because we had nothing to do. And it was a, it was a trek. I can't imagine like having to do that every day, two hours. Wow. That's dedication. (laughs) Yeah. I think you get used to it. I think the first week it was a lot of like just falling asleep on the bus because uh-huh. I was too tired to do anything else. And then now I like actually get some reading done or sometimes I work on the bus. So it's like not waste of time now, thankfully. Now LinkedIn is one of these platforms that I feel like, I don't know, it has a weirdly dubious reputation. Like it's somewhere between Facebook and Twitter in terms of how they've tried to change up, like say the home feed, for example, or even different features that they have. I feel like if you took those two platforms and did a Venn diagram, (laughs) like LinkedIn is right in the center of that. So with the like design systems work that you're doing, are you all taking into account different UX principles and ways that users are are navigating through the site? No, not really. So like, well, we talk to designers when they're building the components, but I think those like the things users actually interact with on the site is more of a sum of the parts rather than the individual parts. And we make the individual parts so we can make like, well, first of all, we don't choose the colors or like really the design or anything. Like I guess the designers work on the UX, Mm -hmm. but I think the experience is more of the sum of the parts, like how the, how all the elements interact on the page, like the layout. And we don't have any say on that. Like, I think with the last redesign, like some people were coming up to me and like talking to me like, oh, you're on the design systems team. Why did they like redesign it this way? And I'm like, I literally like have no say. Yeah. You're just kind of following what they, what they put forth. Basically. Okay. I mean, I use LinkedIn all the time. People are always asking, how is it that I'm able to find guests for revision path? so easily I, I guess it looks like it's easy but it's usually through linkedin i mean i think it's a great site i'm a pr- premium member i think is what it is but cool uh, yeah uh, i mean i i like the fact that you can have sort of all of your professional information in one place i don't really use any of the other features though like i know that there's ways that you can like make posts like 
a blog and all this sort of stuff. I just, I don't know. That's too much for me. I just use it to <laughs> let people know like, hey, here's like my online resume of sorts. And then you can connect with other people professionally that way. Yeah, I think they definitely have like different groups of people. They have like super users that are always like posting stuff. I'm, I think very much more like you in terms of like, I will post like a link every like two months and then my like resume or my online LinkedIn profile is always updated, but that's about it. But yeah, like I remember at LinkedIn orientation, like people were talking about like, what's the most, you know, valuable thing or like your best feature at LinkedIn or of the website. And a lot of people were talking about how they got several jobs off LinkedIn. And I was just thinking about like, wow, I'm like really the worst LinkedIn employee. <laughs> like if anything, I was talking about how I enjoy Twitter. And then someone was like, did you get a job off Twitter? And I was like, yes, actually. Oh. Um, and they, yeah, they asked it more as like, oh, well, LinkedIn helped me get a job. And I was like, well, Twitter helped me get a job. Yeah. Um, so like, yeah, I do love it. And I think it's useful for a lot of people, but um, I think I'm okay with just like it not necessarily being like, or not me ne- not necessarily being like a super user. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean you don't really have to be. You're, yeah. you're building it from the from the inside. So I think some people have like that mentality that you have to be like in love with the product or like one of the biggest fans to to work for the company yeah. or to build it. I mean, it helps, but it's not necessary. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in terms of in terms of people, I, I would think a lot of people find work off LinkedIn because that's where your work history is. Yeah. And it's like <laughs> for that reason. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think LinkedIn does make it really easy to apply for jobs, but I think it may, uh, I don't want to say it makes it too easy. I feel like it maybe abstracts too much of the process. Oh. So, so before I started at Glitch, I was heavy, heavily, heavily looking for work. And use LinkedIn a lot for that. And, you know, you can, you know, set your parameters of uh, the types of jobs you're looking for, the location and everything. Yeah. And then when you go to the job page, it'll say, oh, here are all these jobs you can apply for. And it's it's just as simple as like clicking apply and it sends your LinkedIn profile. And I think yeah. you can upload like a PDF of your resume or something. It was almost like a game. It was almost too easy. You just click the button. Just like, like click, click. Yeah. I'm like, oh, it, I, it's 10 minutes and I've applied for 20 jobs. <laughs> I'd never heard back from any of those jobs. And I wonder if it's because it was just like kind of impersonal. Easy. Well, I mean, not only kind of impersonal, but I think from the other end, I'm wondering how many of these kinds of uh, requests or applications or whatever are yeah. people getting flooded with because it's so easy to do it from the user end, you know? Yeah. I wonder about that, but I know that I applied for a bunch of jobs on LinkedIn and never got anything. So whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would guess like people who are posting these jobs are just like posting it everywhere they can post jobs. Right. So like, mm-hmm. I think so. And I think what, what does help with LinkedIn, especially if you have the premium account is that when you go to apply for the job, you can sort of see the general demographics of everyone yeah. else who has applied. So you can say, Oh, this many percentage has a master's degree or you yeah. have six out of 10 skills they're looking for. And here's the salary range. And it's like, oh, well, this is helpful information. Yeah. So let me know if I should apply. But even still, I didn't hear anything back from a lot of people. I think even when I applied for Glitch, I just applied through the website. I didn't, I don't think they even had it on LinkedIn. So I don't know. How early did you apply for Glitch? Like how, I guess, how long had it been around? 
So I applied for Glitch in, I want to say October of last year. Okay. And then they got back to me and we started doing interviews in, oh wait, was it October? I think like early October that happened. We did interviews in October and then I got the offer sometime in like late October, early November. And then I wanted to start after, well, after Thanksgiving. And then I was going on like a short trip with a friend after that. And so I started in December. So it was probably the quickest process of, I mean, I haven't applied for, I haven't done like a ton of interviews and jobs, but it's probably the quickest. Like I applied and they were like, here's the interviews. We did like, I think four or five interviews between two separate appointments. It was pretty quick. It's pretty quick. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. (laughs) So speaking, I mean, we're talking about glitch. That's actually how I found out about you. When I first started working there, we were doing all of these uh, kind of profiles of creators that were on the platform that were building a lot of these just like super dope, creative, fun, interesting, weird, wacky kind of projects and stuff. And that's how I found out about you and about your work. What drew you to creating and starting building projects on Glitch? I graduated last year and I started work when did I start work? I think I started work in like July and like I, I had gotten into the groove of work and I was like, okay, I'm get, I'm like ready to get back into creating projects for myself. And I'd always wanted to make a Twitter bot, but like I literally just had no idea. And like every single tutorial I would find would mention Heroku and I mm-hmm. did not want to use Heroku. It was just like, I just, it just felt like too much effort for like the basic thing I wanted to do. Like all I wanted to do is make a bot that tweeted tweeted like my president is dash Mm -hmm. and like it just seemed like overkill so i just kept postponing it and then i don't know how i'm pretty sure it was twitter where someone was like oh you can have you tried using glitch oh wait i think i do remember there's a guy i follow i think stefan um he created bot wiki oh yeah, yeah um yeah and i think he had a tutorial about like how to do this on glitch and then i looked at the tutorial and it was just like i just like scroll through it because that's what i do with every tutorial i like try to measure like what is the difficulty of this like how long would this take me and like looking at the tutorial it seemed like pretty easy i just followed the tutorial and i already had the idea so i like started i started with like a google sheet of like all the things I like, because I just wanted to be like, oh, my, I think it was like a tweet from Quinta B, the comedian, and she was like, oh, my president is like Rihanna's verse on Lemon, or Lemon, (laughs) I forgot what song it was, but I was like, oh, this is funny, like, wouldn't it be funny if, if there was just a bot that just tweeted that, and I think a lot of my ideas are just like, wouldn't this be funny, and then I make it, so yeah, I read the tutorial that Stefan had posted on BotWiki and I was like, okay, I just followed the tutorial and then I made the bot and then I tweeted about it. Yeah. And that was basically it. And then after that, I was just like, kind of like, I'm very much an advocate of do the, doing things the easy way. Like I'm not really into like complexity for the sake of it. So because like glitch allowed me to do things in a way that was easier and then like I didn't have to set up Heroku like I could just make things so quickly and like using the same code that I use from another project and just making that process seamless so that's why I started using glitch and also the response I got was like really encouraging like I mean it was like it was my first bot and it was kind of it was not really complex at all it was like my president is and then append something to the end of the line mm-hmm. so it wasn't very complex in terms of the idea 
but the response I got was really good. And I, like I thought, oh, this is like a great community to just like be a part of. And so I think what got me started was the ease of use and that what kept me was the community. Yeah, I really like the the thing with Glitch where you can sort of take a project that's already working and then yeah. just, you know, kind of remix it. That's what we call that's what we call it on there. It's just sort of remix the project, which is cloning it, and then make your own little additions and changes to it. And it should work if you didn't break anything, but you can sort yeah. of start from a place where it already works instead of starting from scratch and having to figure it out. Yeah, you have like a baseline to be like, oh, at this point, before I did this certain thing, it was working. So if anything, you can just go back to the original, like be like, oh, what went wrong here? Yeah. So that's it just like makes it super easy. So after that, what are some other projects that you ended up making? So I made a series of bots. So after my president bot, I made one called Why Under Why? I think it was around the time before or like after the Forbes 30 under 30 came out. And that like, I think that time just always annoys me. I just think the whole thing is a farce (laughs) because like, I feel like with like, I nominated myself for this interview. Right. And like a lot of that happens behind the scenes, like people nominate other people. And I don't think that that's bad or anything. I just think people like need to be aware of the process so they don't think that I'm just getting all these interviews because I'm such a great person. <laughs> I was say, don't sell um, yourself short now. You're doing great work. <laughs> yeah, but I think like a lot of my friends are doing great work, but the way the like a lot of these organizations are set up, it's like they're not doing the work to like surface people who are necessarily doing great work, except if those people are just out in the open and very vocal. A lot of people who are doing great work often have to do the work or ask a friend to like nominate them or like ask their friends to like write this whole thing to nominate them for the Forbes 30 under 30. I feel like that's obscured when the end product comes out. When you win these these awards, you don't see that like a friend asked a friend to fill out this application. It feels like a meritocracy and it's mm-hmm. not. So I don't like like that obscurity where people feel like something is unattainable. Yeah. Meanwhile, it's only attainable because this person did this, 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 and this, or like mm-hmm. had access to these resources. So I guess that's my problem with the Forbes 30 under 30. So I just wanted to make something that just gives awards to any and everyone. There's Darius Kazemi makes a lot of bots and he has a lot of great resources for making bots. He has a GitHub repo called corpora that's just a list of different data sets so i found like a list of industries and a list of jobs and i i just like the bot basically like will tweet like 12 under 100 working in aviation or something like that and just tweet different variations of that so that was the second bot i created some other projects yeah it's usually just like this would be funny or like me trying to something that i have a problem with Instead of like writing an article or like writing a tweet that I have a problem with it, saying like just making something that's satirical. So I guess another project would be, are you a tweeter or a retweeter? So it just like tells you if you're a tweeter or retweeter based on maybe the last 30 tweets. But I think that one is nice because it has like little cute animations. So it like gets your information and then creates a graphic for you that tells you if you're a tweeter or retweeter. I think... Mm -hmm. For that one, it's the value is really in the illustrations and the experience. Like the idea is cool, I think, but the idea can be cool, but the execution can be bad. 
I think that's what makes that particular project. What other projects can I talk about? Well, there's one that you did where you can you can like make music with facial expressions. Oh yeah, because I remember writing about that one. That one I remember. I really like that one. That was I was doing a batch at a place called Recurse. I think they describe it as like a programmers retreat, like a writers retreat, but for programmers. Hmm. So you just go there and work on whatever you want to work on, but it's kind of like a co-working space, but with other people. So I was just working, like I was, I wanted to learn about open CV stuff using like facial detection and stuff like that. So they have like a discourse channel where you can talk about what you want to learn. I mean, I think I posted that and then somebody just walked up to be me, walked up to me and said, have you heard of a theremin, which I think is an instrument? Yeah, it's this electronic like instrument that you wave your hands over and it makes these sort of eerie sounds. Yeah, so I think he was like, I want to make a musical instrument and you're working on using facial expressions, so we should make an instrument out of facial expressions. And I thought, I think it was the name that got me first. I was we can call it Face the Music. And from that moment on, I was like, okay, I'm going to make this just so I can say it's called Face the Music. Like that name was really important to me. So we worked on it together. We like surveyed a bunch of facial detection libraries. And I think the one we settled on was CLM Tracker. So that uses, that gets the facial, the coordinates of the points on the video canvas. And from there, it's just a matter of translating those different points and the movements. Like from one, if you move your eyebrow up, that difference in the points that we're getting into the system will trigger a particular sound a particular volume yeah and then we added we use p5 to draw shapes so as you're moving like shapes are interacting with your face i really like that project yeah it was just like i never worked with music before so it's really interesting when you have like different kinds of people in a space like what kind of things you could create i don't think i would i would have been able to think of it wouldn't have been something like I went to as an idea to make if somebody hadn't approached me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, being in that kind of environment, it just sort of fuels you and helps you out and gives you other ideas or different things that you can consider when you're working on projects. Yeah, and I think it also like has to do with Glitch kind of has that same capability, working in the same space, being able to like see what other people are working on and kind of think of ways that those could intersect. Like that happens a lot when people tweet their project, you're like, oh, this could be this, or we could just, we could extend this thing by doing this. Like I remember one project where like there were just a bunch of eyes, I think, on the screen and they would follow your mouse around and it was like really creepy. And then someone changed those eyes to like something else, like a mouse. I think, I don't remember what they changed it to, but it was just like a really simple addition and just thinking, yeah, it's just really nice when you have access to somebody's ideas and you can just decide to make something else. Oh yeah, there was another one that was about text, like you put in text and then it adds like claps. Oh, like emphasis, like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then there was one that's so like, sc- add like a bunch of emojis to make it seem scary. Yeah just like exclamation marks or like a moon or something. And then there was one that instead of making it look scary, like instead of like scarifying text, it'll happify it. So it add a bunch of hearts and just like seeing all those transitions from one project was really nice. I I think, you know, there's like a general theme that these projects that you're, you're working on kind of touch on. And that's, you're kind of 
just creating for the sake of creating. It's not about, oh, I have to necessarily create this project to fix a problem. It's just, oh, I just want to make something. I just want to make something. Yeah. Just kind of putting it out there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think while I was in school, I really wanted to find the intersection between technology and activism and make work that was activist in nature. And I think, yeah, that was what my creative saver complex talk was about. Like I, I put too much emphasis on it being creative and it using technology than like the actual activism part. Cause I think there, there are so many articles about how like design can change the world or how code can change the world. And I think if you start with the mindset of code first, like you're always going to end up creating something that doesn't actually fulfill the purpose. So like I was trying to get out of that mindset when I graduated. So I was just like, I'm just going to make whatever I want and it doesn't have to fix a problem. It doesn't have to espouse a solution. It can just be me making something and my activism or social good can be done in other ways. It doesn't have to be me using my creative skills. And I want to definitely make sure that we link to that uh, that talk. That talk, you presented that at this year's uh, XOXO Fest in Portland. It was a really great talk. Uh, it was it was late at night because it's just one. It's, yeah, I was it's, falling asleep. <laughs> <laughs> so, so kind of to give some context for people that are listening. So XOXO is this kind of annual, I don't know, what's the best way to call it? Like an internet culture type of an event or something. And then like this year, they had this art and code event, which Glitch actually was helping to put on. Jen Schiffer, who's our director of community engineering. I forget what Jen's title is, but it's it's a good title. I want to say community engineer or something to that effect. But so she emceed it. We had a couple of creators from Glitch. We had you. We had some other folks. But it was late. It was like from seven to midnight. Yeah. And then yours was at like and it eleven. Was, it was delayed. Um, and it was delayed. Yeah, because yeah. It, it was much more popular than we expected <laughs> it to be. And so it's eleven p.m. on the West Coast, which is what two a.m. on the East Coast. But it was a great talk. I, I say all that to say. I don't know if necessarily the audience, well, I think the audience that was there, the ones that showed up for you showed up for you, but it was a really great talk. And we'll put a link to it in the show notes. What was the inspiration behind the creative savior complex? Like you said, you wanted to find this intersection between tech and activism, but how did it sort of manifest in this way? So it manifested because like for my thesis project, um, so the school I went to is called Gallatin and it's like a make your own major school. You create your own concentration. So my concentration was like art and technology and design. And as a result, we have, I guess a lot of schools have that, but we had final projects or like a thesis project kind of. And my thesis project was how to use like data visualization to fight corruption in Nigeria. And I was really passionate about the idea. So I started working on it. And then I just got really anxious because like I had this big lofty goal. This project is going to like help combat corruption in Nigeria. I'm from Nigeria, if just wanted to mention that Mm -hmm. um, for context. But like I got very anxious about the project, kind of had a breakdown like in the middle of the semester and then kind of just like pivoted to another project and just left that project alone on like introspection of like thinking why was I so anxious it was because like my goal was so lofty and the goal was so lofty that it was like kind of ridiculous to to think this one project could even make a dent and the issue like I don't think 
creative projects can't make a dent. I think, and I had I hadn't like gone back. Like I visited Nigeria, but it, I hadn't lived there for the past four years because I was in school. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of still I was distanced from the problem. Corruption in Nigeria wasn't affecting me directly anymore, and. Yeah, it was just there was a distance from the project, from their problem. I didn't really know, like I knew what I was doing in terms of the project, but I didn't know enough about the problem. I didn't know how to address it. And I think knowing all those things at the back of my head while still trying to like create this project that was like saying that it's going to do this and this was like stressing me out. So I think I started thinking about why am I actually trying to do this project? And after trying to answer that question and the answer was that i thought data visualization was really cool i wanted to learn d3 so like the reasons for doing the project were actually just selfish i don't say selfish in a bad way like i think it's i do things to learn all the time just for the sole purpose of learning or just for the sole purpose of wanting to make something but i was framing it as like a solution to a problem when what i really wanted was just to learn d3 and to learn how to do visualizations So I started thinking about how we do things or how we frame things and how we do things, but with intentions that are not actually to do good, but we frame it as doing so and how that can actually be bad for activism. Because if you're just interested in the technology or interested in some other goal, if you want, if you just want to learn something, you want to add something to to your portfolio. You can do that, but if you're saying that you want to do good, then the other reason, the other goal you have is going to, the idea of doing good is going to be sacrificed at the altar of whatever other goal you have. And that's what happened with my thesis project. So I just wanted to get out of that mindset and stop thinking of myself and of my work as like something that is so monumentary that it's so big and important that it could solve such a big problem as like that. I think. Mm -hmm. A lot of that work has to be done in conjunction with people who are experiencing the problem, people who have been fighting the problem for a long time. Yeah. So that's what the talk came out of. And I I think I'd seen some other examples of that. So over time, that was maybe 2017. So over time, as I started working on, I guess, more silly, more wacky projects, I started thinking more about why did I choose to work on these projects instead of things that are in quotes, more important. And that was where the talk came from. Yeah, I remember in your talk, you had some examples of how people maybe were trying to, I guess the best way to put it is like throw design at a problem or like throw technology at a problem to try to fix it. I remember specifically one of the examples. I remember when this happened and I was like, this is dumb, but people (laughs) were redesigning the cardboard signs that homeless people would use or panhandlers would use. So instead of, I don't know, maybe trying to actually help them with some money or an opportunity, they're like, we're going to take this sign that you've done <laughs> and just put a fresh coat of paint on it. Yeah, and like, make it look pretty. Yeah, make it look pretty. And it's like, but that doesn't, doesn't what does that solve do, the problem. Really? Yeah. yeah. You just thought throwing some design at the problem made you feel good about it. And I remember when those kinds of things were happening, and I remember specifically how much attention it got from yeah, the media. Yeah, it was on Fast Company. Uh, that's where I saw it. It was, it was on Fast so Company. Big. And, and I, I was like, this is wild. I was like, I did not understand. This is not fixing the problem. This is just, it's sort of like shining a light on the problem. But yeah. I don't, 
yeah. They, they said it themselves, like in their interview or like in the particular one that I read, they said they said it's unclear whether these signs actually help. That sometimes the signs are stolen or they like make the people holding the signs targets. And I'm like, that's literally the opposite of like why you're putting people in danger because you wanted to put some fresh paint on the cardboard. And that's like just so irresponsible, I think. Yeah, it's, it's irresponsible. That's I like that's a good way to put it. That's a really good way to put it. So, yeah, like I said, we'll put a link to the talk so people can really kind of check it out and see more because there's a lot there's a lot more to it to unpack than what, you know, we kind of are just talking about right here. Yeah. What's this newest project that you're working on? It's like a library of, of gendered words. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I think I started thinking randomly like a year ago about disparities in the English language. More specifically, there is this one. It's kind of a swear word. Okay. So I don't know if I should say it. You can say it on here if you want to. I'll put some, I'm like putting quotes around this part in the, it's up to you if you want to say it. It's not wrong. But there's a word like called soft boy. And then there's another word like that's called fuck boy. And I think a lot of people were having problems with that word. But I think a lot of women were using that word. And then I started thinking about, okay, so there's this one word for men that describes like a certain kind of man and like if you look in the dictionary there's so many other words to describe like a sec to describe in a negative way a sexually promiscuous woman mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. this one word just came like it's a kind of a recent word like it hasn't been around for very long but these words that describe sexually promiscuous women negatively have been around for so long yeah. um so i started doing some research and i think there was a woman well there was a woman i don't know what her position was she might have been like a i think she was a linguist her name is julia stanley Mm -hmm. and she wrote this paper called i think i'm blanking on the name but basically she did a survey of all the words in the dictionary in the english language for like a sexually promiscuous woman versus a sexually promiscuous man and i think she found like she stopped counting because she was i proved my point and there were like maybe 280 for a woman six for a Mm. man when I started thinking about that, I wanted to create something that allowed people to explore sexism in the, ling- in the English language. And I think I was just like very interested by language in general and seeing like, what does the English language have to say about how we interact with each other or like what relationships we have or what problems we have with gender in our society. So it has... The website is a list of gendered words. And then if you click on a gendered word, you can see if there's an equivalent to the gendered word in forever gender. So if you look at master, the equivalent will be mistress. Mm -hmm. So you can also see like something, another person described as the semantic derogation of women's like language, how like words like master and mistress were originally created with the same idea in mind. Like if you think of master, you think of like the head of a house, right? And if you think of mistress, that has taken on a negative connotation over the years. And that's happened to a lot of different words like that. So you can see the difference quite plainly if you have master and mistress on the same page with the definition. So you can see how master has maintained the same level of dignity that it originally started with, but words like mistress and words that were 
originally had the same meaning as male words have taken on like a different a different path to derogation. So I wanted to create something that allowed people to explore that thing so we can I guess now I think what I want to do is there's a lot of things that we think about and we talk about them as like personal experiences. We can talk about how the English language is sexist, but I wanted to create something that I could point to and be like, here, look, it's sexist, kind of just like relying on personal anecdotes. And I think personal anecdotes are really valuable, but I think there also is value in having data that you can look look at and be like, here is your proof, here is what, here is evidence. So that's what I wanted to do with this project. But also in the reverse, words for men that don't have equivalents for women also reflect also reflect the experiences that men do have. I forgot what the word is, but I think it's kind of like a wuss. Okay. But I forgot what the exact word is, but there's no equivalent for, for it and for women. So it kind of reflects how there's this pressure on men to be not vulnerable or like not emotional. Like if they're emotional, that negative word is applied to them. And there is no negative word applied to women like that because that's not something that is seen as negative on a woman. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? No, that makes sense. Yeah. So I just, I wanted to create something that allowed people to explore how language kind of reflects our biases and reflects like the world we live in. Mm-hmm. And then also make something that people could look at and be like, hey, this is, this is a reason why the English language is sexist. Yeah, I feel like certainly with, uh, I think it's like a, a kind of an increased perception or at least increased knowledge of this is happening now. I feel like in tech where we're looking at the terms and the language that we use to make sure that it's not being exclusionary or sexist or racist or classist in any sort of way. I, I, I'm remembering uh, specifically fairly recently, I want to say this happened in the Python community, correct me if I'm wrong, where the yeah, terminology the around slave. like master and slave were changed to, I forget what it was changed to, but it was changed from that because of the possible connotation. Yeah, and there was like a lot of uproar about it. And I think something I think about is if it didn't matter, people wouldn't try to fight it so much, right? Mm-hmm. But also like Textio, I think they're like, I forgot how they describe themselves, but they like do a bunch of surveys on job postings to see which ones are terrible for attracting female applicants. And they did like one and they saw like Uber use words like, at any cost or like at any means necessary mm-hmm. words like that and how those words kind of attract certain kinds of people and exclude certain kinds of people so they're doing a lot of good work in terms of is your like job posting sexist and it's like also words like superhero oh i hate that when you see or it like yeah guru or code, ninja yeah code assassin yeah um, if you think of those words, like there's a reason they attract certain kinds of people. Like if mm-hmm. you think of those words, what do you think? Like even superhero, what do you think about when you think of superhero? Like Superman. And, yeah. And like even words that there was a period in time where we created equivalents to those words to kind of like even the scale, but like it didn't do anything. Like there was supposed to be like superheroine and superhero, but nobody actually like uses. Mm-hmm uses those words to refer to women. So they're still very gendered in a way. And that has like repercussion, repercussions who applies to jobs, but also like the everyday language we use to describe men and women also has repercussions in how those people, women 
the word we use to describe anyone really have repercussions yeah. in how they feel like they can exist in the world. Words mean things. Yeah. Every basically. day, all day. <laughs> I'm glad that you're bringing that up because so well before I, you know, started working at Glitch, I used to teach. I used to teach like intro to web design and web development courses. And it would always surprise my students how much I kind of impressed upon them that they really kind of need to be able to write effectively. I think they felt because it was a code, I mean, because it was a course where they were learning how to code that they didn't necessarily have to know English, which is kind of what some of them would say, like, why do I have to know about sentence structure and using yeah. certain words and all this sort of stuff? I'm like, the way that you can describe your project or describe yourself, that helps your users out, that helps your audience out. It also lets people know whether or not you're a good designer. Like if you can't explain the work that you're doing in a way that other people can understand it, that doesn't really like help you as a designer. And so I'm glad like right now that this, the conversation that we're starting to see in, I think the design and the tech community has been around how is the language that we're using exclusionary? How is it, are there ways that we can change it to make sure that we're attracting the right people that we're not unintentionally putting people off by certain things that we say. I mean, it's something even with, that we do at Glitch when we look at our job postings. We try to make sure that the language is open and it's fair and it lets people know that, hey, if you have the skills for the job, you, you should, should apply. apply. Yeah. And that it shouldn't be about, I mean, I think there's always been this thing about whether or not something has a culture fit. And a lot of that culture that I feel like is a bit of an unsaid thing with companies is around language is around the, the terms that you use, the things that you say, the way that you express them. Yeah. Um, and some companies may see those as perks, but those perks can also be filters. And so examining that language and making sure that it's not exclusionary, like you're saying, it's not leaving people out, it's not unintentionally misgendering or or even, you know, offending people is really important. Yeah. So what do you, I guess with the, I don't want to say like the end goal of it, but I know you're kind of still working on the project? Is there more that you need to do to kind of get it at a, a good state? Yeah. I mean, like there's like a bunch of basic stuff, like just setting up a database. Like right now it's just pulling from a JSON file. Mm -hmm. So there's that, but like, I think I also want to try and get more information about the history. Like I think if you saw like master and mistress, like you could tell there's, there's a difference in how these words are used, even though they're supposed to be the gender equivalents. But you can't tell that like there's a history of this happening to like words that are used to refer to women. So I really want a way to like connect all the words back to their history, like add etymology data. Like right now, it's I don't want to call it a dictionary because I don't think it meets the criteria. Yeah, I want to make it more of like a learning resource. So even if I can't like have those exactly on the page, like thinking of ways to make that easier to access. And then also, I think I want to add like categories, like, I guess the original idea was thinking about words that were related to, to sex. Mm -hmm. So like categories for different words. So I guess you could see like how many words in the dictionary are related to like jobs that are like gendered words for jobs mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Um, so I think that's probably the next step I want to take. But I'm having like trouble just trying to release it before I just add all these things. I feel like if I went with the plans I do have, I'll probably release it in a year. Mm -hmm. But there's like that saying about like, if you're not ashamed of it or something, by the time you release it, you released it too late. Um, <laughs> so 
I'm like trying to think whether I just want to release it first and then start working on the things that I want to add. I think you should release it. I mean, even just how, how we're talking about it right now, certainly the other information that it sounds like you would need, maybe that could be something that comes from the community once they find out about the project. Yeah. I really want it to be something. I think another thing I wanted to work on is obviously like code is imperfect, especially with like language. So like there will be some things that are wrong. It's relying on like some, it's, I don't even know, but basically there is like an algorithm that you can use a tool you can use to like find the equivalence of words. And that's like based off a large amount of data, like a large amount of words and like sentences. A, like a thesaurus or something like yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's a huge corpus of data. So I'm using something called the Google News Vectors to find the equivalence. Okay. So basically, I think what they have is like Google News has access to like a ton of words and how they've been used in sentences. So it uses like it trains the algorithm on how words have been used before and then uses that to find the equivalence. So it works like in very obvious cases. You can do like son is to man as daughter is to and it'll give you back woman mm-hmm. um, but like language is obviously much more complex than that and like there's a lot of things that are just that can't be embedded in an algorithm or in data so like a lot of the things are wrong not a lot but there are some of them that are wrong so i also want to make it like editable say oh this is wrong or this needs to be changed or this is not the actual definition because i think with language now that's pretty big like people are just like making new words of their own like we're seeing new words come out i think faster than any other time period people are really just taking it upon themselves to be like here's the word for this and i think that's really liberating and i want to see more of that too yeah i think anyone that has spent any amount of time on urban dictionary yeah (laughs) or really even on twitter to be quite Mm -hmm. honest you hear all kinds of new different words and and portmanteaus and things like that. And it's interesting what, what, and to kind of talk about that language. It's funny how sometimes I'll see on Twitter, people will say, y'all didn't start saying such and such until Twitter when that specific word may have existed. I'm thinking of the word intersectionality, but that, yeah. that specific word has existed for decades before, just because you haven't heard it before. Right. Doesn't mean that it's not new, but I get, I get what you're saying. Like different new words are being coined and created from web service. I mean, we didn't have the word Google 20 years ago. If the, we, yeah. we did, but it related to mathematics. It still does the, the different spelling of it. G-O-O-G-O-L. But Oh, I uh, didn't know that. Yeah. It's like 10 to the 100th power or something like that. Or, oh, or wow. 10, I should know this. I have a math degree. I don't know. What's <laughs> up my head, but, but like, even as like different web services and things come out, that's changing the ways that we use and say words like, Twitter, you know, Twitter and tweets and retweets and yeah. adding someone, you know, like, you know, there's all these different languages and things that are coming about. Yeah. Um, like Uber is basically just like any kind of vehicle that gets you places. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah. It's, like it's, people use Uber when they're calling Lyft and I'm like, there you be. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I kind of want to take this back. I know we're, we're spending a lot of time right now in the present And kind of in somewhat of the past, you know, you talked about the work you've done at the Recurse Center, as well as, you know, your work that you were doing while you were in school. Where did you kind of first get this spark that this was the kind of stuff that you wanted to do? Because you say you've been here for about four years now. Is that right? Did you get this kind of back when you were in Nigeria? Well, five years. I think 
in Nigeria, I was always interested in some way in design. I mean, I did like the basic things and like designed um, like the year yearbook and like newsletters and stuff like that. So I knew I was always interested in that. And then we have this exam that we have to take to get into colleges. And like one of the classes you can take is computer. <laughs> Wait, it was called something weird. I think I think it was called IT, which okay. is not weird, but. Like one of those things is like you learn like Dreamweaver. And I think that was my first experience at making websites. And I don't remember being super into it, but I was like, this is cool. I think I just liked being creative in any format. In high school, I wrote a lot of poetry in addition to design. And then I was, I think probably in terms of CS and like the combination that I like the space that I make things in now kind of happened in college. I got to college, I was undecided, so I just decided, well, me and my parents decided I would take a computer science class. <laughs> so I did, and it was cool. I liked the first class. So I was in the CS program at NYU, and then the second semester was harder, much harder. So I was kind of like, the second semester, I think we were taking Java, and I was like, oh, I don't know about this. And we were also taking one of the core requirements for the computer science degree was discrete mathematics. And mm. I also was not into that at all. That class still like gives me <laughs> chills. <laughs> when I think about it, I'm like, oh. So like that semester was really hard. And like towards the end of that semester, I was like, I can't do this anymore. So I transferred out of the CS department to the make your own major school at NYU called Gallatin. Uh-huh. It was nice because I could just take whatever classes I wanted. And I was telling my parents that it was, I'm taking CS classes. And I was, but like I wasn't, I wasn't taking the hardcore CS classes. I decided I wanted to take like web design, like graphic design classes. So that's what I did second year, first semester. Well, second year, I kind of just started taking classes that were more geared towards like creative and code. So I took web design and then I took a class in processing, which was, I think, probably the thing that like pushed me into this field. So processing is an open source framework for learning to code in the context of the visual arts. Platforms like processing and p5.js, now there are a ton of them, but they allow you to make more visual projects more artistic projects with code so like I, I made a game and processing and then from there I think I just kept making stuff with processing and then after processing I moved on making stuff for the web and that was kind of how it started happening but it was definitely because I had the freedom of this program to kind of spend one semester just taking classes that I thought were interesting rather than like following yeah I don't know if I had continued with the CS program I'm not sure if I would, I don't know. I'm not sure where I would be. Hmm. Interesting. Was your family kind of supportive of you going down this route? At some point they did. I think they didn't really know what I was doing and I was being very vague about it because I think I knew they wanted me to study something that would give me a degree people could look at and be like, oh, this is this. Yeah. No, you can do this. Like the degree I have is, I have a concentration, but the degree itself is individualized study, which mm-hmm. is kind of dangerous. Because it's kind of hard to pinpoint. Like Exactly. Yeah, like, yeah. I think maybe CS is, or like the tech industry is more 
it's more welcoming to certain kinds of people, but I think in general, it's more welcoming to people who might not, who might not have followed like the traditional path, Mm -hmm. computer science degree. But like, even when I decided to change to the school, I wasn't sure about that. I think I was just, I think I just knew that like, this wasn't it for me. And like, I would be miserable if I kept going in the CS program. And I think I had called that semester when I was taking discrete math and the Java class I remember once I was working on this homework assignment and I hadn't done very well in like the past homework assignments before that one. And like, I think I was about to make a breakthrough and then I'm like mistakenly like poured water on my laptop oh, and no. it got fried. Oh, and, like, my dad. And I was just crying. <laughs> and like, my dad was like, do you want me to fly there? And I was like, no, it's fine. What, what was he going <laughs> to do if he flew there? He was going to do it. But I think he was just like, that was the first time. Cause like I had always been a good student. That was like the first time I was just really struggling uh-huh. in class. So I think he was just very, what is happening? Yeah. So I think after that, after they saw how miserable I was with my current discrete math, the Java class, they were more open to it. I think they still wanted me. Yeah, I think I don't think I communicate. I miscommunicated, not miscommunicated. I kind of danced around the idea that I would be getting a degree in individualized study. I told them you can create your own major from other majors. So I think they thought it was kind of like a a school where you could get like a triple major or something yeah yeah. rather one where you meld them all together so that was the impression i gave them so they weren't a hundred percent but they knew i was struggling and they were supportive in that sense but i didn't tell them outright that my degree would be an individualized study but i'm so thankful it worked out because like that could have yeah it could have been a struggle how do they feel about it now I mean, I have a job now, so I think... So they're cool. Think, yeah, they're cool. <laughs> After I got my first internship, they're like, okay, she knows yeah. what she's doing. Yeah. yeah. And my parents are like, okay, you're making money now? Cool. Yeah. Yeah, and LinkedIn is... They use it, so they're like, oh, my daughter works at LinkedIn. So I think now I'm just like fine with it. Because, uh-huh. yeah, all, I think all they wanted was for me to have a job after yeah. graduation, a decent amount of money. Yeah. Who are some of your influences? Like a lot of this work that you're doing, like I you know, it seems like you are certainly inspired by causes that are happening out in the world and you want to use your art and code to affect that change. But are there any like other technologists or artists out there that you kind of find yourself gravitating towards in terms of influences for your work? When I first started out, I think Darius Kazemi, who I mentioned, created the resource called Kopora was really big. I think his work was it was just really funny, but also it was really funny and it was a critique. And I read a lot of his writing on his blog. Like there was one about making small projects. And then there was another one about, yeah, there was one about making small projects. And he was talking about how he also went through the process of wanting to finish something to make something really big. And I think I mentioned it in my talk, how like he, he moved from like making four projects every year to making a hundred and mm-hmm. the amount of people he reached the amount of the amount he got back from making a hundred projects that were like not perfect but were like funny and like when he allowed himself to make something that wasn't perfect he started getting more back of what he wanted i really started thinking about like how like everything doesn't have to be like super polished or like, this perfect thing that solves this problem and i think there is it was really nice while I was at NYU, even though I was in undergrad, there's a master's program called ITP, which stands for Interactive Telecommunications. 
And that was very much what I was interested in. So I was always kind of in proximity to them and what they were working on. And they had something called the Stupid Hackathon, which I also mentioned in my talk, mm-hmm. um, which is about just like creating things that have no use whatsoever. And one of the founders describes that when you create something that has no use, you're, what you're really creating is a critique. And I think I lashed onto that idea. Yeah, Darius Kazemi. Who else? Yeah, I think I like Sam Levine. There are a ton of people whose work I respect. And I also just like the people who might not be making like more satirical stuff and just like making actual real work that helps mm-hmm. like activists and helps causes. And I think that's super inspiring. I just, I would like, I think with gendered or like the gendered project, that's falling more towards that bucket rather than like being satirical. It's serious and has a problem and wants to address. But I think with this project, it didn't feel forced. It was an idea I was interested in. I think it was very natural for me. But what I was trying to do before was force myself to make something that solved a problem. So I, I do respect both sides. Like I love satire and I think there's always space for work that's like funny and just like making fun of things. But there's also, you know, a big space for work that's like actually trying to actively solve a problem. So with a lot of the work that you've done this year, I mean, your projects, your talks, I've seen blog posts and everything. I mean, 2018, you've really done a lot this year. This episode is coming out on December 31st. It is not only our 275th episode, but it's the last day of the year. What do you want to accomplish in 2019? I want to do a lot more writing. Yeah, I'm really excited to... I think with this gendered project, I did a lot of research. Like, I read a lot of books, which is really nice. Um, Like, my friend, Netta... She, when she heard about the idea, she just encouraged me to like be grounded in history and be grounded in research. And I'm really glad I listened to her. Now I have like this blog post about the project, the reasons why I wanted to make it, and just like the history of studying linguistic sexism. So I'm really excited to write about that. And yeah, I'm really excited to write more. Like I mentioned, I wrote poetry in high school. So I've always wanted to come back to it. I haven't had time to write poetry as, as of late. But like, I think like writing all these things is another way to, well, just write. So I'm really excited to write more. I might just like chill out for a little bit. I think <laughs> I would like to get promoted if I'm being honest. Like, I think. Hey, put it out there. Yeah, I would like more money. Well, yeah, I think that's mostly the reason. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, hey, hey, put it yeah. out there. Put it out there in the universe. <laughs> but also like trying not to stress myself with that. Finish and release gender and. I guess, get feedback from people. I think I want to streamline my donation process. Like just, I think I'm still kind of disorganized. Like something will happen and be like, oh, I'm going to give to this cause. And I would like it to be more organized, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Um, Oh, like the causes that you give to or just- Yeah, basically- Okay. Yeah, the causes that I give to. I think I've I've been saying for a long time that I'm gonna like write a list and then actually say like this is how much I'm giving to this amount of people because I think if I don't do that then I don't know how much I've given this year because sometimes it's just like I see a tweet and then I do it and I like just document that better. Maybe that could be a bot idea. Yeah. I remember seeing some bot. Oh my god, I'm blanking on the name of it, but I know who made it. It was a. Dr. Courtney Ziegler, who's uh, half of the duo behind Appalition, which is this, uh, oh yeah, this, yes. like personal finance app where you you tie it to your credit or your debit card, and then and, it donates. 
Um, yeah, it, it like takes the change from your donations and puts it towards bail reform. That's also a project like abolition and bill block are two projects that use technology, but in an act in a way that's like actually useful. I love both of those projects. Yeah, he, um, he made a bot that's called like a. I think it was called like CC11 or something like that, because he saw that tweets, the way that tweets are used for journalism, they're used for a number of different purposes. They have no real level of copywriting or licensing to them. They're kind of just out there for anyone to use in any sort of way. And so I think what his, what his bot does is like, if you, if you tweet something and you include like a specific hashtag, then the bot picks it up. And like assigns a Creative Commons license to it. Oh, wow. Or something like that. I have to look into it. I forget the name of it. I'll find it and let you know. But okay, uh, thank you. That could be something where, like, if you see, because you say, like, you're, you're seeing these donations as they causes come across on Twitter. And you're like, oh, I see this. I want to donate. And sometimes with those things, once you finish donating, there's always like something that pops up that says, you know, share or tweet that you donated yeah. to, you know, what have you. And you can like tweet that out and then it attaches to a, hashtag to a bot that's like oh you know yelly donated to xyz yeah i don't know it's, it's like just this a, is my history yeah yeah i'm just kind of throwing that out there when you when you mentioned that that idea immediately kind of came to mind for me yeah definitely that sounds a good idea when you look back at your career like to this point like what do you wish you would have known when you first started i think the first thing is that it would be okay yeah i think i spent i always spend a lot of time worrying i'm quite the warrior and i think i mean i think this happens to a lot of people who like did well in high school where they just have this moment where like they're not doing as well anymore mm-hmm. and they think that means like the world is crashing around them and i definitely went through that but also i think that my value is not in my output that it's in how i treat people and i think it took me a long time to learn that and i think like obviously i can see that now because like i have a good job and i'm I'm comfortable and like a lot of good things are happening. I do wonder if like I had just like a year of maybe not creating anything, if I would feel the same way, but just like not tying like worth to productivity, just like allowing myself to breathe, not do the most. Yeah. It's still something I'm dealing with. I mean, I literally just got my wisdom tooth out and then I flied and I flew in the same week and then I'm having an interview. (laughs) So I think, yeah, just like telling myself not to do the most, like to do my best and just be okay with that. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What kind of work would you like to be doing five years from now? I, at some point gave up on the idea of like a perfect company or a company where I'm just like in love with the product and very invested in like what they're doing. But I think I might be open to that again. So I think it would be nice if I just worked at a company and actually had a stake in what decisions were being made. Like I would still like to be doing like engineering work, but still kind of have, like I talked about LinkedIn and I make the decisions what's, or like me and my team members make some of the decisions, but in terms of how things are going to go for the quarter. Like, I don't really have much say in that. So I think getting to the point where not only do I have a say in that, but I also just like care about what happens on a bigger level. It's a project that I'm invested in seeing succeed. Mm-hmm. And I guess in a more intimate way, I think that would be nice if I had that. But really, aside from that, just like doing more what I did this year talking more like I definitely see myself more as 
yeah, I don't know what the balance is yet, where they're 80% writing code and like 10% like interacting with people and like writing and talking. I don't know what that balance is yet, but I think like they're, I do definitely want to mix all those things. Like I think it would be nice if all the extracurricular things I'm doing, if that was like something I could actually mention in my performance review is like something that's part of my job. I think you can. I mean, that's what I've done. <laughs> like a lot of the stuff that I did with my studio, like I, I had clients, but I was, I mean, like I, I would cobble together like, oh, I've done revision path. And then I did this thing and then did this thing. And I kind of like jammed them together into a career. But the good thing about doing that kind of thing is that you have a lot of different skills that you can bring to the table where yeah. if you were just a, a specific kind of designer or developer, then you're sort of just narrow to that, you know, that just to that field that you're working in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? I think the best place would be Twitter. I tweet a lot. So it's Yells Heard, Y-E-L-L-Z, and then Heard. And then I think my if you I think probably Twitter is the best bet. You can probably scroll through my website. It's my first name.com. But okay. just follow me on Twitter. All right. Sounds good. Well, Omayeli Aranyeka, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I really like the what you had to say about kind of just working through the the feelings that you had in terms of, you know, the creative savior complex that we talked about working through those to kind of just start putting work out there in the world. I think it's kind of a good thing to end this year off with because I mean, this year, 2018 has been such a wild year in a lot of different ways. And yeah, I know one thing that I've been hearing just from creative folks and even from tech people is like, they want to do something, but they don't necessarily know what it is they can do. And we've started to see some civic engagement around this with, designers and technologists, which is great. And hopefully we see a lot more of that. I like that you're also just kind of making things just to make them. And like, that's important too. That's important to just have out there everything. Yes, we want things to, we want to consider kind of the impact of our projects, but then also we want to maybe have some silly projects. We don't want projects that are going to hurt people, but we also want to just put things out there that are going to, you know, just kind of make all of this life that we're living tolerable i guess that's a weird yeah. way to put it but <laughs> i used to be like very much of a skeptic you know like when black panther came out i think like maybe years ago i'd be like why are they spending all this money to buy a, a theater people to see black panther and then like uh-huh. now it's like low income people deserve to like have as much fun as everybody else we shouldn't be miserable and like not everything has to be in service of I do think you should be doing things that are in service of the greater good, but it doesn't have to be like your creative, your creative output. I a hundred percent agree with that. I think that's kind of a good place to, to end things off here. So yeah, I just want to thank you again so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. Thoughts of love are in And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Omayeli Aranyeka, and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Omayeli and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Google Design, and MailChimp. Did you know that people spend over 3 billion minutes daily on Facebook? 
With an audience of over 2 billion users, that's pretty impressive. People use Facebook to share and connect with the people they care about, and their experience is the core of the Facebook design team. Sound interesting? Then learn more about Facebook design and what they do at facebook.com forward slash design. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well, including us. You know, MailChimp really gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, then please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I know it's the end of the year. I know a bunch of podcasts are saying this, but like it really, really helps out a lot. It only takes a minute or two to do. It helps a lot more people find out about the show, both here in the U.S. as well as internationally. It helps the show by bumping us up in the rankings for design podcasts. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.